We're going to be going to 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 through 2 here in just a second. And I want to teach a sermon today that's in line with the text. And we're going to go to the text here in a little bit. But we want to talk about slavery. We want to ask the question, does the Bible allow for slavery? This is probably not a subject that would get talked about in a nominal Christian church, Brother Dan. But it's part of our text today going through 1 Timothy. So we're going to discuss it. Oftentimes people who make an attempt to discredit Scripture, and you've probably had this put to you, they blast out with words like this. Atheist, agnostics. Well, the Bible teaches, if you believe the Bible, then the Bible teaches that slavery is okay. Anybody ever had somebody tell you that? I have had somebody more than one time tell me that. What I want to deal with today is what our response should be to that type of a statement. And if we believe that the Scriptures are the inspired words of Yahweh, that means that Yahweh used men as instruments to pin down the very words of His mouth, then we have to believe what the Scripture teaches even on this subject. And if the Bible teaches that slavery is permissible, then we must believe it. But if the Bible teaches that slavery is to be condemned, then we must believe that. The easy way out that nominal Christianity would take, for the most part, is this. If somebody approached them and said, well, the Bible teaches that slavery is okay, they would say, yeah, but that was in the Old Testament. That's how a lot of people would try to answer that. Of course, if that's your answer, then you need to really start listening here, okay? Because (laughs) I try to teach every week that the Old Testament is just as much part of Scripture now as it was back when it was first penned. As a matter of fact, it's the foundation of the New Testament. And so to say, well, that's how it was in the Old Testament, but it's not like that anymore, we don't serve a God who changes His morality. He doesn't decide something's a sin over here and then switch that and say that it's not a sin. Condemn a man over here for committing the sin and let a man go free because it's no longer a sin. That's a God that changes his mind. And if he changes his mind one time, then he could change his mind again. He might decide, well, this thing, this New Testament, New Covenant thing I've got going on now, I don't think it's working too good, so let's try something else out. That's not the mighty one that we serve, brothers and sisters. As the sister said earlier in testimony service, he is in complete control of everything. He has the power to do anything that he pleases, Psalm says, in heaven above or on the earth beneath. Nobody can stop his hand. If he wants to do something... It's going to be accomplished. And we can't stop it. So that's not the way out. We shouldn't say, well, that's how God was in the Old Testament. A lot of people tend to think that, though, Brother Mike. They think that, well, God back there, He was kind of harsh and He gave them all them laws, but now He's kind of merciful. As though He wasn't merciful in the Old Testament. As though He wasn't gracious in the Tanakh, in the Scriptures, in the days of the patriarchs. But we know, of course, that Noah in Genesis 6, he found grace. In the eyes of Yahweh. In Exodus 33, Yahweh speaking to the man Moses said, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. He had just as much grace back then as he has now and just as much mercy back then as he has now. Grace and mercy aren't something new to the new covenant. The new covenant, brothers and sisters, is the law of Yahweh written upon our hearts and our minds. That's what the new covenant is. So when somebody says, well, I'm under the new covenant, ask them what the new covenant is. What is your definition of the new covenant? And if it doesn't line up with Jeremiah 31, 31 through 35, and Hebrews 8, 8 through 12, then it needs to be dismissed. I've never gotten the correct answer from that question, not one time. I've asked it to many, many people, probably dozens of people. 
maybe over a hundred. Never have I once received the right answer to the biblical definition of the New Covenant. We passed a church not long ago. It said New Testament Baptist Church. And I'm not against everything that the Baptist Church teaches, and I'm not against everybody or every preacher that claims to be Baptist. I think there's a lot of good people in the Baptist denomination. All right? I think that you'll find a lot of good people in a lot of different denominations that Yahweh's working with, and He's beginning to show them truths in their heart and in their mind. So I'm not against everything. But I wondered when I saw the sign, I wonder if I asked the pastor what the New Testament is, what his response would be. What is the New Covenant, Pastor? Elder, what is it? What would his response be? Would it be the scriptural response? If it's not, then he shouldn't be an elder. He shouldn't be a pastor. He ought to know what the new covenant is. He claims to be under it. He should know what it is. So we shouldn't just say, well, God allowed slavery or didn't allow slavery. Either one. We haven't discussed it yet. But he either did or did not allow it in the Old Testament. But everything's different now in the New Testament. No, God doesn't change. He doesn't change his morality. It's forever settled. He said, that's the only reason that us as sons of Jacob are not consumed in Malachi. He says, for I am Yahweh, thy God, and I change not. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. And we better be thankful. Because he made a promise to our father Abraham a long time ago. And we would be consumed if it weren't for him keeping his oath. He could swear by no greater. He swore by himself. And because of that oath that he gave to Abraham, we're not consumed to this very day. And so praise Yahweh for that. That's the mighty one that we serve. Not a, not a wishy-washy schizophrenic God. No, we serve one that sets something in stone and He says this is how it's going to be throughout all eternity. So, what about slavery? Let's read 1 Timothy 6, 1-2. It says, All who are under the yoke as slaves must regard their own masters to be worthy of all respect so that God's name and His teaching will not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters should not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but should serve them better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. We'll get back to that here in just a little bit. We're going to see tonight that the Bible does not condemn slavery outright so long as it takes place according to biblical law. There are regulations and there are prohibitions on how slavery is to be carried out though. But the Bible does not condemn it outright. A point to remember as we get into this study is this. Before Yahweh gave certain laws and sub-laws in regards to slavery, and we're going to look at a few of them, the Israelites had just been released from slavery of the harshest kind. We know in Exodus, with the Passover deliverance, that the Israelites were brought out of the land of Egypt. Hebrew there is Mitzrayim. Literally, it means to be in bondage. Exodus 20 says he brought them out of the land of Egypt or bondage, out of the place of slavery. They were under slavery of the harshest kind, and the slavery that the Egyptians had the Israelites under was unjust and ungodly slavery. It was one that was to be condemned. Because the Israelites had been placed under slavery which was not proper, or in accordance with the will of Yahweh, Yahweh then gave them laws that regulated how slavery or servanthood was to be carried out. In other words, I've brought you out of the wrong kind, something that's not regulated, so I'm going to give you regulations on how servanthood and slavery is to be carried out. It's similar to how when Yahweh gives the judgment of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is a great judgment. It's wonderful. 
What Yahweh is telling us there is not that I'm being a harsh dictator. He's saying that the punishment has to fit the crime. And what a lot of theologians and atheists and agnostics today don't realize is that when Yahweh gave that law, He was giving it in distinction or in contradistinction from the many laws of the nations that might say a life for an eye or a life for a hand. You poke out somebody's eye, you forfeit your life. That's not just. The punishment doesn't fit the crime. Yahweh comes along and says, no, these laws are not right. The other nations don't know what they're doing. I'm going to tell you the punishment needs to fit the crime. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, and a life for a life. That's what Yahweh's doing here as we're going to see in the laws of slavery. The Israelites had been in bad slavery, so he's going to say, no, I'm going to show you how that slavery is to be carried out. In many societies back at that time, and as we've seen throughout history, slaves had no rights. But the Torah changes all that for the Israelite society. Slaves, both Israelite and sometimes non-Israelite, were to be treated with respect. Let's look at Exodus chapter 21, verses 2 through 4. Next slide, son. Exodus 21, 2 through 4. It says, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he is to serve for six years. Then in the seventh, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to her master and the man must leave alone. But, if the slave declares, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I do not want to leave as a free man, his master is to bring him to the judges, and then bring him to the door or doorpost. His master must pierce his ear with an awl, and he will serve his master for life. That's Exodus 21, 2-6 total. In the agrarian society, that Israelites lived in in that time, sometimes a man's best bet would often be to work for someone who was more wealthy than himself. He didn't have a big flock. He didn't have a lot of land. So what he would do as a Hebrew man would be a servant to a Hebrew man that was more wealthier than he was. He would be his slave or he would be his servant. I want you to notice, though, that in this law, when you bought a Hebrew slave, the slave was to be released on the seventh year. This is the sabbatical year. This is the year in which no plowing and planting is taking place. But that's not all that took place on the sabbatical. On the sabbatical year, servants slash slaves were to be released. That is at least Hebrew Israelite ones. The slave was also given the right to rest on the Sabbath day. In Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, we have the Torah instructions about the Sabbath. And it says, In it you shall do no work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servants or slaves, some Bibles say. In other words, they get to rest on the Sabbath day. Also, in Deuteronomy 12, verse 12, and in Deuteronomy 16, verse 11 and verse 14, we see that the slaves rejoiced with the master at the feasts. We see they would go to the feasts and they would rejoice with their master. And the master was to remember that he was once a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, Yahweh commanded him, make sure when you go to the feast, make sure you bring your slaves with you so that they can rejoice and have a good time too. In Exodus 21, 26 through 27, a slave that was maimed or mistreated by his or her owner was to be immediately released. 
We also see in Deuteronomy 23, verses 15 through 16, that there was such a law in the Torah for fugitive slaves. Slaves that had ran away from heathen masters and came and found refuge in an Israelite master. It said that you as an Israelite master was not to mistreat that slave. We find in Paul's writing in Galatians 4 verse 1 that Paul says that a child differs in nothing from a slave. In Genesis chapter 15, we see that Eleazar, Abraham's slave, was going to be Abraham's heir of all of his belongings. Abraham was old, he was stricken in years, he didn't have a child by Sarah. So he said to Yahweh, Eliezer, my servant, is going to be the heir here. Of course, we know what happened. Yahweh blessed Abraham and Sarah in their old age with Isaac, with a son, so that he could have a child from his, from his own loins, from his own progeny there. And we also see, last but not least here in Ephesians 6 verse 9, that Paul tells us masters are supposed to treat their slaves with respect, knowing that they both, the master and the slave, have one master that is in heaven. So we see that the Torah and the whole Scriptures, even the New Testament, doesn't outright condemn slavery. It regulates it. Back in Exodus 21, 2-6, what we just read, we see how that this slave in the sabbatical year was to leave as a free man. But we see something else that's beautiful. We see that if this slave had his master give him a wife, and he had bore children by that wife, and the sabbatical year came, he could leave, but if he left, because the master gave him the wife, he had to let the wife and the children stay with the master. But he had the choice. He could say what? I love my first, my master. Well, this tells us that the master is treating him very kindly. It's not slavery as the Egyptians put Israel under. It's not at all. This man says, I love my master, and I love my wife, and I love my children. And it says then at that point he's got to go up to the door of the doorpost and he has to have his ear bored through with an awl. And if you were to look and you were to see a slave there in the Israelite community that had that ear that was bored through with an awl, you would think, boy, that right there is a righteous man. He loves his master, his wife, and his children. He chose not to go free on the sabbatical. He chose to stay. This is akin to our own experience Spiritually, when we go from slavery to sin to slavery to Yahweh, prior to the act of the Holy Spirit, the regeneration power of Yahweh's Spirit, prior to that, we are all slaves to sin. We are slaves to sin. And a slave doesn't set himself free, brothers and sisters. It takes a higher power to set him free. But Yahweh sets us free from sin. But when He sets us free from sin, that doesn't mean that we're free to commit sin, does it? No. He sets us free from sin, and that means we're now a slave to who? To Him. But He doesn't mistreat us as His slave, does He? No, He treats us kindly. And the love that He has for us makes us want to be a slave to Yahweh. Just like this man didn't want to leave his physical master, but wanted to stay with Him. That's how Yahweh does. He sets me free from sin... That doesn't mean I'm free to sin, but I'm free from sin. And then because my master treats me so well, I don't mind being in servitude to him. I don't want to leave. I love him. I think that correlates from the physical to the spiritual. Let's now look at a parallel passage if we go to the next slide in Deuteronomy 15, 12 through 14. Let's read verses 12 through 14 here. 
It says, if your fellow Hebrew, a man or woman, is sold to you and serves you six years, you must set him free in the seventh year. When you set him free, do not send him away empty-handed. Give generously to him from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. You are to give him whatever Yahweh your God has blessed you with. Verse 15 through 17. Remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and Yahweh your God redeemed you. That is why I am giving you this command today. But if your slave says to you, I don't want to leave you because he loves you and your family and is well off with you, take an awl and pierce through his ear into the door and he will become your slave for life. Also treat your female slave the same way. The females got the same treatment as the males here. Verse 18, Do not regard it as hardship when you set him free because he worked for you six years worth, twice the wages of a hired hand. Then Yahweh your God will bless you in everything that you do. Here when the sabbatical year comes in this parallel Deuteronomy passage, I want you to notice that upon the release, the slave was to be given to, and he wasn't just to be given to, but the text says he was to be given to generously. That master was to bless him from the flock, from the wine press, from the produce. He was to bless that man that had worked for him for six years, and now he had the right, if he so chose, to leave free. Notice also that Yahweh is bringing the Israelites' redemption into view here with the command. He is commanding the release of slaves to remind them of their release from slavery. He said, this is why I'm giving you this command to let them go. Because you were once slaves in the land of Egypt. And I came in and through Moses said, let my people go. Yahweh will bless the master. Yahweh will bless the owner who blesses his slave with release and with generosity. He will bless him because he's kept the Torah and he's not mistreated his servant. Now it is true that the non-Israelite slaves did not have to be released in the sabbatical year. As we go to our next passage in Leviticus 25, we're going to see this. We're going to start by reading verses 39 through 43. It says this, If your brother among you becomes destitute, notice now it's your brother, And he sells himself to you. You must not force him to do slave labor. Let him stay with you as a hired hand or temporary resident. He may work for you until the year of Jubilee. Then he and his children are to be released from you. And he may return to his clan and his ancestral property. They are not to be sold as slaves because they are my slaves, Yahweh speaking. I brought out of the land of Egypt. You are not to rule over them harshly, but fear your God. Verses 44 through 46. Your male and female slaves are to be from the nations around you. You may purchase male and female slaves. You may also purchase them from the foreigners staying with you or from their families living among you, those born in your land. These may become your property. You may leave them to your sons after you to inherit as property. You can make them slaves for life. But concerning your brothers, the Israelites, you must not rule over one another harshly. End of that passage. The laws that pertain to slavery in Exodus 21, the ones we covered before, about not mistreating slaves, are just as applicable to non-Israelite slaves as they are to Israelite slaves. The only difference between the Israelite and the non-Israelite slave was this, is that you could have a non-Israelite slave for life. You still would not mistreat that servant. You would still let him keep the Sabbath. He would still come with you to the feasts. You would still make sure that he had housing, food, clothes, and that he or she was well taken care of. 
It wasn't a mistreatment at all. Not at all. The harshly at the end of the text does not refer to an allowance to treat the non-Israelite slave wickedly. It is simply a reference to how the Israelite owner was under no obligation to let the non-Israelite slave go free on the sabbatical or the jubilee year. That's what it's in reference to. It's kind of like charging interest or usury. He says to the Israelites, he says, you may not charge interest to the fellow Israelite brother. He said, now to a stranger you may charge us interest. And that may not sit well with us, but it's, it's Bible. It's Scripture. He says, you may do it in this case and you may not in this case. Likewise with the servants and the slaves. He says, you need to let them go. If they're Hebrew slaves, let them go on the sabbatical. But if they're not Hebrew slaves, they can serve you for life. But you're still not to mistreat them. You're still to take care of them. The non-Israelite slave was still treated justly with a place to stay, food, clothing, and one day of rest each week. And also, too, when the feasts would come. Deuteronomy 12 and Deuteronomy 16. This brings us full circle back to 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 2. Let's read it again. Paul writes to Timothy, All who are under the yoke as slaves must regard their own masters to be worthy of all respect so that God's name and His teaching will not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters should not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but should serve them better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. We've got to understand that Paul is writing to Timothy, as we've seen in our study of 1 Timothy, on how Christian people are to live their life, how things are to be regulated in the assembly, how we are to live, what things we are to do, what things we are not to do. We talked about elders a lot, deacons. He doesn't stop here. He's talking to Timothy and he says, listen, if there's any of you, brethren, that are under the yoke of slavery to masters, who are not faithful Christians. What was the person, the Christian person, to do? Paul says he was to be respectful to his unbelieving master. Notice here that Paul, even in the New Testament writings, does not condemn the practice of slavery outright. He simply regulates it. He even tells you as a Christian man, if you're under the yoke of slavery to a master that doesn't believe in the Messiah, you still are supposed to give him respect. That's what he says. That's pretty radical, isn't it? It's what Paul is teaching here. The purpose was this, so that Yahweh's name and the teachings of Yahweh would not be blasphemed. The conduct and the behavior and the speech of the Christian slave would be a witness to the unbelieving master of the truth of the Messianic faith. He's a slave to an unbelieving master, but yet he still is there on time for his unbelieving master. He does what's required of him. He never speaks negative. He never grumbles. He never complains. He does it as unto the Lord. And that unbelieving master looks at him and he says, there must be something to what this man believes. There's got to be some substance to this man's faith. I mean, I don't even share his faith. I don't even believe. But yet he's treating me with all this respect. That's what it's supposed to do right there. When the Christian slave worked hard and gave it his best for the unbelieving master, the master would see how dedicated the slave was in spite of him being under the yoke of an unbeliever. And you know what? The same goes for us today who may be employed by unbelievers. A lot of times we may be employed on a job and we may work for unbelieving masters 
It's really akin. The employer-employee relationship today is very similar to the master-slave relationship in New Testament times. And so what Paul is telling us here is that even if we have to work for somebody that is unbelieving, we're still supposed to be respectful to them. Never are we supposed to go out of Yahweh's will, out of Yahweh's Torah, but we have to respect them. It's exactly the same thing that Yeshua taught in Matthew 5 when he said, Love your enemies, do good to those that hate you, and pray for those that despitefully use you. You don't feel like praying for people that despitefully use you, do you? But Yeshua says, Do it. And Paul echoes Yeshua and says, Respect your unbelieving master, even though you're a slave to somebody that's an unbeliever. Verse 2 goes on to show that some Christians were in slavery to believing masters. We see in the book of Philemon, Philemon was a master of some slaves. We see that in that book. There was a man by the name of, if I'm pronouncing it right, Onesimus. And Onesimus was at one time an unbeliever, but he got converted through the teachings of Paul. And you know what Paul did? He said, listen, he said, go back and be under your master, Philemon. And they would both be believers in the Messiah. And the book of Ephesians that Paul wrote showed that the slave was to treat his master with respect and the master was to treat his slave with respect. There was to be something mutual there. Not a harsh dictatorship, not a beating, not anything like that. But it was like an employer-employee relationship. And Paul admonishes these slaves, the ones that have believing masters, to not treat their believing masters with disrespect. In other words, don't think you can take advantage of them and your job because they are brothers. In other words, your believing master asks you to do something. And maybe you show up late or maybe you don't do it to the best of your ability. And you come and they ask you, so, well, why, didn't, why haven't you done what I've asked of you? And you, you know, hit them in the shoulder and say, oh, brother, don't worry about it. We're brothers. I'll take care of it. But see, you're taking advantage of your believing master. That's what Paul is saying. Don't do that. Don't do that. A lot of times we get too close to people and then we think we can just run over them and we think that we can you know, go against our believing master, and it's not right. It's not right at all. Just because we re- develop close relationships with people doesn't mean that we still are not to show respect and love and consideration for those people. Do you know the longer you know somebody, the harder it's going to be for you to love them? The, the closer you get to know people and the more you learn about them, who they truly are, it's going to be a little bit more difficult to love them. When you first know them, you first meet them, It's going to seem like, man, you know, this person is very heavenly. Now, they're pretty cool. But then you see their faults and their flaws. See what ticks them off, what doesn't. But that's where the love of the Messiah has to come in, doesn't it? Has to come in. Love covers a multitude of sins. It does. No matter if they're a brother or a sister in the faith, no matter what kind of person they are, Yahweh says you have to love them. Even if you consider him your enemy, he says you love your enemy. Yahweh loves his enemies. He gives them the same sunshine and rain that we get as his friends. And he says we have to show them that same respect as well. So in whatever servant state we find ourselves in today, such as in that employer-employee relationship that we might have today, and so this might be where it applies to us, we should always conduct ourselves with Christian conduct and Christian principles. If we work for an unbeliever, if we work for an atheist, would respect him as a boss. We don't necessarily have to respect his beliefs, but we respect him as a boss. And that's our Christian witness. I'm not saying you can't witness to him with your words and you can't get into a biblical conversation with him, but your best and first and foremost witness is going to be this. Showing up on time, 
doing what you're supposed to do, and Him watching you, even though He's an unbeliever, you still respect Him as an unbelieving master. He's going to know something's different about that person. That person's not the same. That person's not like the other people. Likewise, if you find yourself in a relationship with a believing master, a believing boss, and this especially, especially though, it places the light of the gospel bright in the cases where unbelieving masters need to see the joy and the hope in serving Yahweh and Yeshua. They need to see that. Our greatest witness is not even with our words. It's not. Because so many people say one thing and then practice something else. I see it all the time. Our greatest witness is with the life that we live. Because see, when we live the right lifestyle, then we give Satan no occasion to come in. We give them no opportunity to blaspheme the truth. They look for ways to find fault. But they examine your life and they can't find fault. So they say, there must be something to this. Let me conclude by saying this. The Bible does not condemn slavery outright, but it does regulate it. And Yahweh speaks very, very harshly of those owners that will mistreat their servants and disrespect them.